open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 16 this morning. Genesis 16. There are two basic ways to read the Bible. There are more than that, but there are two kind of basic preconceptions people come to with the Bible, two different ways people read the Bible. One of them is the way probably many of us grew up reading the Bible, the way I grew up reading the Bible, was the Bible is basically an instruction manual for how I'm to live my life. So you've heard the phrase, maybe you've used the phrase, Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. I've used it, I used it a long time ago. And, and that's how some people view and come to the scriptures. So in that case, they read the, especially instructions, they see those instructions, and absolutely the Bible has instructions for us. But they read Old Testament narratives, Old Testament stories, and they say, I am to follow, I am to be like these people, the great heroes of the faith, Abraham, David, uh, Solomon. I am to be like, I am to, if I simply pattern my life after their lives, then I'll be blessed, I'll have a good life, and when I die, I'll go to heaven. Now, of course, a problem with reading the Bible that way is if someone comes to it and they genuinely desire to pattern their lives after these people, is that they'll find that they fail to live up to God's standards. They'll go into despair. Or maybe they'll find they're really good at their own self-righteousness and they'll be, they'll be proud and they'll think they've actually done something. They'll think they're actually acceptable before God. Um, someone who doesn't believe in the Scriptures and the authority of the Scriptures might come to the Bible in that approach and say, look at, uh, if this is God's, instructions for how we are to live life. Look at how bad these people are. What an evil God you must serve. But those approaches are wrong. Those approaches are not how God wants us to come to the scriptures. Rather, the scripture is God's story of redemption which finds its climax in Christ. It is, God's, it is a story of God rescuing a people from sin and death and if we look at it in that way, then we can see uh, especially the old characters in the Old Testament in enti an entirely different light. We see them as failures who are in need of a Savior. We can all measure up to that, right? We see them as even the great heroes of the faith, as those who are desperately in need of someone who will swoop down and rescue them from their own unbelief from their own sin, from the mess that they've made of their lives. And that's exactly what we need. We need to find ourselves in the story of redemption, to recognize our own desperation, our own need for a Savior. Ever since we met Abram in chapter 12, there's been this constant call for him to believe, to have faith, to trust in the promises of God. But what we find is a roller coaster of faith ups and downs in Abram's life. Uh, the Bible is unashamedly honest about even the heroes of the faith and their sin, their lack of belief, their succumbing to temptations, and really bad sins, as we'll see today. In our last chapter, even, we see God once again making promises to Abram Abram questions God, and God reaffirms his promise with signs. And he takes him out and shows him the stars and said, Look, at th th your, your 
descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And then he gives them another sign, the, the ceremony of the covenant, where God himself passes through the animal pieces and says, if I don't keep up my end of the bargain in this covenant, may I become like these dead animals before you. Swearing, I will keep my covenant with you. So once Abram sees this, he says, I can trust in God and I will go forward walking by faith. And that's not what we see exactly. Because in chapter 16, we come to a real low point in the story of Abram and his wife Sarai. God has just reassured him of the promises. And now Abram should have absolute confidence in what God has promised. But time goes by and as the years pass, Abram and Sarai waver in, they faith, waver in their faith and they attempt to get the blessing of God by their own ways rather than by trusting in God. And what they find is that this only ends in strife, in broken relationships, in disaster. And we are tempted in the same way today. When we try to achieve or attain to the blessing of God, in our own timing, in our, in our own means, the result is always broken relationships and disaster. So let's look at how that plays out in this story. Follow along with me in Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to you your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well uh, was called Berlahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old 
when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Here's the truth of this passage. God will fulfill his promises, but he will do so in his own timing and in his own means. He will fulfill his promises, but it will be in his own timing and by his own means and not according to human means. So, in light of that, we are called to wait on the Lord, to wait patiently on the Lord, trusting him to fulfill his promises to us with with absolute confidence that he will fulfill those purposes. So here's what we're going to do. First, I'm going to walk through the story to make sure we understand what's going on and then pulling out some applications in the midst of it. And then second, I want to draw out a few, uh, two implications for us concerning the main point of the passage. Uh, so tackling the story and then tackling the so what question or what does this have to do with us. So let's begin with the story. Notice that the narrative takes on the f- uh, familiar form of problem then a proposal for a solution, then an action is taken, and then a result. So problem, proposal, action, and result. The problem here is one that we've already seen, childlessness. The childlessness of Abram and Sarai. We saw it in Abram's questioning before. He, He points out, no amount of reward even matters because I don't have an heir. I don't have a son who will uh, receive the blessing, who will carry out the descendants, who will uh, one day be a blessing to all nations. Look at 15, chapter 15, verse 4, where God answers him and clarifies that this won't be Eleazar who will be the heir. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So Abram knows God has spoken to him that it will be his own son. And it's probable, I think it's right for us to conclude that Sarai heard about these promises. She knew about these promises. But as time ticked by, she too wondered about the fulfillment of them. She's getting older. Every day, time ticks by, and she hasn't seen any evidence that the promise is going to be fulfilled. And notice that she believes in the sovereignty and providence of God. In verse 2, she says that it's the Lord who has prevented her from bearing children. And she's right. The author says nothing to uh, correct her theology in this. But she begins to reason from that that maybe she's the one who's supposed to fulfill the promise. She maybe thinks, I do have an Egyptian servant. Basically a, a slave, one who would obey Sarai and do what she told her to do, everything she told her to do. Maybe she could become a surrogate for me, she thought. Maybe that's what God meant. Maybe, maybe I can step in and fulfill this promise because God's so delaying so long in doing what he said he will do. After all, this was perfectly acceptable according to the customs of the day. If you couldn't have a child... Give your husband your slave. She would be a surrogate for you. The child would still be your child. He would inherit the blessings. Perfectly acceptable. Just give your servant to your husband. I think there's just kind of a side lesson for us here in that it's this. Just because something is acceptable to the society around us doesn't mean it's acceptable to God. So polygamy here is mentioned and in other places in the Bible 
And it was acceptable in many cultures throughout history. But when we see polygamy mentioned in the Bible, it always portrays it as a distortion of God's good design for marriage, and it always ends in disaster. It always ends in broken relationships, in sorrow. So we should take note of this, that although promiscuity and pornography Divorce for no reason, same-sex marriage may be or may become acceptable to our society. They are not acceptable to God. And consider in your own life, though. You know, we can think about these bigger issues. Consider in your own life, in what ways have you been influenced by the culture to accept something that you know is not pleasing to God? We live, we swim in this culture. And it's easy to, to slowly become accustomed to the things of this culture without even realizing that we've been changed. Without even realizing that we've begun accepting some of the things that the culture accepts. What about in your own life? In what ways have you been led to call good what is evil and call evil what is good? Sarai's problem here is that though she is still holding out for the promise, she's wanting to fulfill it herself. She's substituting her own plan for the plan of God. She wants that blessing of God, the, the heir, but she's not willing to have it in God's timing and by God's ways. She wants the heir as soon as possible, so she devises this means to get the blessing of the promise. The problem is Sarai's childlessness. And then she proposes a solution, a really bad solution. It's for Abram to take Hagar, her servant, as a surrogate mother to produce this promised heir. And how does Abram respond to this? He, he had had the same questions that she perhaps was having. Why is it taking so long? Is this really going to come true? And so maybe this all seems just perfect to him. Why didn't he think of this before? His wife is the one encouraging him to do it, so... Maybe this is the way that we can fulfill the promise. And we read in the second part of verse 4 that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And this should remind you of something else that we've already seen in Genesis. Eve took and gave the fruit to her husband. It reminds us of the faithlessness and the passive response of Adam in the Garden of Eden. He took and ate. Sarai takes and gives her servant to her husband. And he takes her and she conceives a child. In each case, it results in shame. And in each case, it ends in someone's expulsion. It ends in disaster. Men, let, let us learn from this negative example in Abram and in Adam. We are not simply to be passive bystanders in our family. We are to be bold in believing God and taking the initiative to lead our families to Christ. Just as Adam and Abram should have listened to the word of God instead of the, those sinful suggestions that they received, God has given us a responsibility to trust in Him and to lead our families to trust in God. See, Abram's response should have been to recognize that God was going to fulfill his plan in his own timing and by, by his own ways, and he should have led Sarai to trust 
in God. To trust that he would fulfill his promises that maybe we don't know when they're going to come about, but he will surely do it. So consider specifically first for men, what has your leadership been like lately? And this is an ongoing struggle for us. An ongoing challenge for us to lead like we know we ought to. Have you been passive lately? Have you been going along just the easy route? Or have you been active, taking initiative in the life of your family to to draw them along to faith in Christ? Really, there's an application for all of us here as well, though. And it's this, that we will receive many suggestions about what we ought to do or what we ought to believe. And often they come from uh, very subtle places. Places we might not think that there's a, there will be a temptation. From friends, from family members. Consider in your own life, who are you believing? Are you listening to the voice which is telling you the opposite of what God has told you in his word? The author moves this story along very quickly. Maybe you've noticed he goes from problem to proposal to action and then result all in just a few verses. What's the result of this grand plan to fulfill God's promises of a son? Well, initially it seems to work. You read through the rest of the story and I actually wonder if Abram and Sarai thought that it did work. Because we see in a a later chapter, Abram pleads with God, bless Ishmael. He's going to be the promised heir. It seems to work. Hagar gets pregnant, but she immediately looks on Sarai with contempt. The idea behind that word is to consider her lightly. Right now, Hagar has taken precedent over Sarai because she has borne Abram a child. And notice, just like Adam and Eve played the blame game, so does Sarai. Look at verse 5. May the wrong done to me by you come back, be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram still abdicates his responsibility. He doesn't, he doesn't take responsibility for this issue and seek to solve it. He says, she's your slave. You do with her what you want to. He doesn't even protect the slave woman, the one who is vulnerable. So Sarai mistreats Hagar until she runs away. And the word here is the same word used uh, in the, uh, when the Israelites are under slavery in Egypt. They were mistreated. They were treated harshly, which probably includes beating of some sort. Sarai mistreats Hagar until she runs away. This is the result of not believing the promises of God. Broken relationships, disaster. This resulted in shame for Sarai. This resulted in tension and marital strife for Abram. And for Hagar, it resulted in harsh mistreatment and going off by herself, destitution. But the story doesn't end there. It's interesting how God responds to Hagar. Notice what it says. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness on the way to Shur. She was back, going back to, to Egypt, it seems like. 
It's amazing, though, how Moses put that. Did you notice that? That the angel of the Lord found her. Like as if, as if she was ever lost. As if God, she kind of went out of God's sight somehow. But it gives us this image of the Lord going after her. Of seeking her out. Nobody else may have cared for her. No one else may have been looking out for her. But the Lord was. The Lord was caring for her. The Lord was hearing her cry. The angel of the Lord, and some think that, that this may be a pre-incarnation of Christ himself, he asks Hagar a question. He gives her instructions, and then he speaks a blessing. Where have you come from, and where are you going? This would uh, perhaps humble her as he reminds her she is... Sarai's slave, that she is not taken precedent over Sarai. And it would remind her, it would cause her to question where it was that she belonged. And by the angel's instruction, we see it was back with Abram and Sarai. He will indeed bless her. God will indeed bless her with a great multitude of descendants. But there's a means to it as well. And it would be to go back and to submit to Abram and Sarai. And then notice, notice what it is that the angel of the Lord promises her in verse 10. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. It's a very similar promise God made to Abram. And he gives further clarification about her offspring. Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man. Now that just sounds funny the way it's put. It makes, maybe makes you think of stubbornness, right? A wild donkey of a man. And that is similar, I think, to the intention here. He will be stubborn in his freedom. He will live outside the, the bounds of, of ci, uh, civility, of civilized countries. He will take on the same characteristics displayed in Hagar as she looked down upon Sarai and did not submit to her. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will be in opposition to his kinsmen. Now we see here that the consequences for Abram and Sarai's doubting God would reach not only into their own relationships, but generations and generations and generations down the line. There would be opposition between the offspring of Ishmael and the offspring of Isaac. Years of strife. The seed of the serpent versus the seed of the promise. Now this episode ends with Hagar naming God and Abram naming his son. Notice what Hagar names God. El Roy, or the God who sees. God had looked after her. And Abram gets his son from Hagar and names him just as the angel of the Lord had promised Ishmael or God hears. Abram was 86 years old. Now, notice from this the grace of God for outcasts. The mercy of God for those who are estranged. Hagar is not even a part of the, the promised seed. She's not even a part of the line from which the Messiah would come. And yet God still condescends to her in mercy. One who no one saw, one who no one cared about, God saw her. God heard her. God cared for her. 
So I want you to consider this for yourself. Perhaps you're in a situation where it feels like nobody sees the struggle you're going through. No one hears your cries for help. Like no one is looking after you. You've been through a really difficult season in life or a difficult trial. And you feel like nobody cares. Nobody has seen. No one has heard. You're all alone. Take heart from this. God sees you. He sees your struggle. He sees the inner frustrations of your heart. The pain that you have suffered. He sees your sorrow. And he hears your cries for help. He cares for you. He cares for the outcasts. He cares for the destitute. For those who are lowly of heart and will call upon him in prayer. Now that's the story. Now what are some implications from all this for us? And two in particular, what this means for us. And I think pointing back to the overall theme of the message. That God fulfills his purposes in his own timing and by his own means. First, this is what we should know. God will fulfill his promises in his own time and by his own means. And I think this in particular is emphasized here to trust God in the timing and in the means of his promise. Do not replace God's plans with your own plans. We're so tempted to rush ahead and to get to the blessings of God without going through God's ordained means to get them. We want God's promises. We want God's blessings. And we want them now. We don't want to wait for it. Consider some ways you might be guilty of this very thing in your own life. Substituting your own means to get God's blessings. Is this not the reason why we spend more money than we ought to? On things we don't need? Now, we can all begin to rationalize wants versus needs, right? We really need a lot of stuff, right? Need it. We're searching for something. We're searching for pleasure or joy or satisfaction. And God has promised us that this is what he gives us in himself. That in his presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forever. But the thing is, to experience the, the consummation, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, we have to continue journeying through this life until we, we reach the promised land. It's going to take a long time until we have the, the full realization of this promise. But we want to get it now. We want joy and happiness completely now. We're not content to wait for the consummation of the promise. So we try to go about it in different ways. We splurge, we spend, we buy things unwisely. And what results is that we don't find the satisfaction we're looking for in the first place. And it ends in broken relationships and sorrow. But don't you realize the ultimate treasure you're seeking for is Christ? Nothing in this world is going to satisfy you. You are made for something more than what this world has to offer. Money's one example. We can think of another example in the larger context of our church. 
churches might fall for this temptation when they are desiring to grow numerically. And that is a really good desire to have, a good goal. And yet maybe a church tries to grow by using human marketing strategies or gimmicks to get people in the door. The desire is good to have a lot of people hearing the word of God, to have a lot of people worshiping God together, but the means are unbiblical. God has promised to grow his church, to build his church, to grow his kingdom. He's promised it will prevail, but the way he will do this is through the preaching of his word, the preaching of the gospel. He has promised it will prevail, but he will do it through a church committed to one another in fellowship, committed to one another in discipling one another. Consider, are we trusting in ourselves and our means and our timing to get things done or in God and what he has told us in the word? Or consider your own spiritual growth. You want to grow spiritually, I hope. That is a good desire to have. In American Christianity, however, we are so prone to follow the latest fad of spirituality. Hit your wagon to this new thing. And then you'll really experience the spiritual breakthrough you've been waiting for. You'll really grow more than you ever have before if you'll just do these 40 days. If you'll just take these steps. But this is, this is simply substituting human means in the place of God's means. God's means are often more ordinary. Weekly gathering with the saints to worship him together, to hear his word read and proclaimed, to receive the sacraments together. These are God's ordinary means of growing his people spiritually. Don't, don't underestimate the power of God in gathering together week in and week out and being shaped, being formed by the gospel, by the word of God read and proclaimed, by the prayers of the saints. This is how God is going to work on us, to grow us spiritually. Be an active part of the fellowship of believers. We are on a pilgrimage of spirituality together, and it's not a sprint. We're on the long journey of sanctification at the end of which we will be with God forever and experience a closeness to him that we could have never dreamed of and that no fad of spirituality can come close to matching. But it will come in God's timing and by God's means and not according to our own. Now these are just a few examples of how we do this. But there are more. So I want to encourage you in time later with your family, husbands with wives, privately on your own, consider what are some other ways I am tempted to substitute my own means of getting the blessing of God rather than the means he has ordained for me in this. The second implication is this, and it's probably the shortest one. So It comes from Paul in Galatians chapter 4. So turn there in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 4. Paul is writing to the Galatians because they've gone after another gospel. He is just laying into them 
Because they have gone away from the gospel he first preached to them. The gospel of free grace. And he cannot believe it. They've gone after a gospel of Jesus plus Jewish observance of the law. In order to be accepted by God. So the entire book of Galatians is about this one pure gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ. And look what he says in Galatians 4.21 and following. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, You who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Paul gives this allegory. There are children of slavery, and there are children of the promise. Hagar represents children of slavery. In other words, those who are trying to achieve God's promises by human means. She represents Abram's and Sarah's attempt to get God's blessing through human means. But the free woman represents a different covenant, and children of the promise. In other words, those who inherit the blessings of God not by effort or human means, but by simply resting in the promise of God, waiting patiently upon the promise of God. And ultimately, what Paul is telling us is that this story was written to demonstrate for us those who are justified by faith in the promise versus those who seek justification by other means. Justification is found only by trusting in the one who came to save us from our sins. God meets our every failure with the gospel. See, the gospel is not for men who have always perfectly taken the lead in their homes. It's for those who have failed in doing that. It's not for women who have always waited patiently for God. It's for those who have impatiently tried to substitute their own means for God's means. The gospel is for men who have been passive, for sinners who have listened to voices other than God's voice, for those who have bypassed God's means, for outcasts and for sinners, for the undeserving Christ died for sinners. Our sin deserves everlasting punishment, but God in his love sent Christ who succeeds in every way that we have failed. 
He lived a perfect life of faith in obedience to God. He never once substituted his own desires or plans for the plan of God. There were other voices speaking into his ear. Satan encouraged him to bypass the road of suffering to get to the blessing of God. And even in the Garden of Eden, he was praying, Lord, if there's any other way, if this cup can pass from me, and yet he submitted to the means that God had ordained and to the timing God had ordained for fulfilling his promise of redemption. Not my will, but your will be done. But he's not simply our example of how to trust God. He is our salvation. He's the fulfillment of the promise of redemption for those of us who have failed. His death on the cross and resurrection from the dead is the fulfillment of his promise to crush the head of the serpent and rescue us from our sin. He is the promised offspring of Abram who blesses all who come to him with the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And now he's inviting you to rest in that. If not for the first time, for the thousandth time, rest in Christ. All the promises of God have their yes and amen in Christ. All the ways you're trying to substitute your own plans for God's plans, lay them down and rest. Rest in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Your Father, perhaps many are here this morning with burdens weighing on them of this life challenges and trials and sickness and pain and strained relationships. I pray that you would reassure us that just as you saw and heard Hagar, you see and hear us. Father, we come to you now in prayer. Let's just take a moment to respond silently where you are in your chair, however the Lord might be leading you uh, from this message, from his word, just respond back to him in prayer before Michael leads us in song.